Hello everyone, this is Sam of Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong, which can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. So as I've mentioned before, a few months ago in January, I had a phone interview with a journalist named Will Stone for a story that he was preparing for NPR about comparisons between the current pandemic that we've been living through and World War II, since at that time the number of casualties of the pandemic in the U.S. had just exceeded the American casualty count from World War II. So this journalist just wanted to speak with me as an example of a historian who had discussed the Spanish flu and had tried to put this current pandemic in some sort of historical perspective for a public audience. So as promised, I want to give you an edited version of that interview as I recorded it on my end. So what you'll hear in a moment is that interview slightly edited. You'll hear my voice as it was recorded on my mic and also at points you should be able to hear the interviewer Will Stone who I was speaking to over the phone but his voice might not come through so clearly. You may be able to make it out more or less but if you don't that's okay. It's just there as a little extra context. So you'll have that interview and then after that I'll also include a teaser section taken out of my latest lecture on the myth of the founding fathers which I posted on Patreon for patrons only so if you're a patron you may have already heard the whole thing if not this is just a little sample of some of what I discuss about the origins and meaning and flaws and contradictions of the whole notion of the founding fathers. So if you want to hear the whole thing, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description and become a supporter at any amount. Thank you. I'm very careful, and if I do draw any parallels between current events in history, I'm always very careful to couch it, that circumstances change and the significance of events change through different times in history. So you can't just make easy numerical comparisons and think that things are therefore comparable or equal. So I'm very cautious about that. I do think there are advantages and disadvantages to making those kinds of historical comparisons. But firstly, when I was approached about this question of looking at the death toll of, of this pandemic as compared to World War II, the first thing that struck me was how strange and how new a dilemma that is to try to kind of tally up and compare the devastation of, on the one hand, a war, and on the other hand, a disease pandemic. And I think that's a very new modern kind of situation, because through the vast majority of human history, people have understood warfare and disease to go hand in hand and to be inextricably linked, you know, and that's been true through the ancient world, the medieval world, the early modern world. If you think of the book of revelations, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, they symbolize invasion, warfare, famine, and plague. And 
that I think is how people have tended to think of it, that the two breed each other and are inseparable. And, uh, and, and it's true. If you look at disease epidemics and the instability that they cause, they often give rise to warfare. And war, when you have these large crowds, these gatherings of people put together in tight, crowded, unsanitary conditions like war camps or warships, they are a perfect breeding ground for disease. And you tend to get epidemics and even pandemics breaking out from wars that then cause more deaths than the combat of the war. That's been the usual pattern through most of history. And my specialization happens to be the 18th century. And if you look just, for example, at the American Revolution, the Americans lost around 7,000 people on the battlefield, which was, you know, a lot, which was a significant number for a small country. But it was tiny compared to the devastation of the smallpox pandemic that began in the army camps and on the prison ships where POWs were held and then flashed over into the civilian population and swept all across the American continent, killing tens of thousands of people. And it was just, I think, part of normal understanding that much of the devastation of war comes from the attendant diseases and the epidemics and the pandemics. And it's really only been in recent times that we've started thinking of those as two separate phenomena that then somehow we have to weigh against each other. And I think it's really remarkable, you know, when you talk about the First World War, sometimes people today remark, oh, the Spanish flu pandemic killed more people than the First World War. And isn't it strange that we don't remember it as a bigger disaster than the war? And that's true, but the Spanish flu was an outcome of the war. It, it began in the army camps and on ships and in the trenches. And, that, and from there, it, it festered and then spread into the civilian world. So the Spanish flu, really, you'd have to say, if you're speaking about causation, the Spanish flu and all those millions of deaths were another outcome of the war, right? And people didn't understand them necessarily as two separate phenomena. And then when you talk about the Second World War, now we're making these comparisons of what are this pandemic that we're in versus... World War II. It happens that World War II was the first American war where more people died in combat than of disease. It was the first time that that scale started to shift and people started to think of war differently. And that's because medicine had improved. We had better sanitation. We had germ theory, antibiotics, vaccinations had advanced. And so for the first time, we could contain the disease devastation. And so you ended up with over 200,000 combat deaths and only about 100,000 or so from disease. And that was the first time that that started to change. And I think that since then, over the past couple generations, we've really changed how we think about war in a way that I think is, is misleading and distorting, that we think more and more of war as just a phenomenon of battle deaths, and that you can kind of sum up the toll of a war just by counting the bodies from the battlefield. And we imagine that it's something that sort of happens over there in other countries. You know, our troops kind of get deployed, they parachute in, some conflict happens, then they get out, they come back, and it's over. And there aren't reverberating uh, waves of devastation. We sort of think of it as something that can be contained and kept far away from 
civilian life. But that's really not true. Certainly, just if you talk about World War II again, you know, millions of people who were deployed were able to get back home to their home countries, including the U.S. But hundreds of thousands of them, they may have gotten home alive, but they were missing legs or missing arms or missing eyes or they were paralyzed or blind. And even those who did get back home without those kinds of devastating physical injuries, many of them were mentally injured. They were mentally scarred and haunted for the rest of their lives. And after all recent wars, you know, you can talk about Vietnam to take a more recent war, hundreds of thousands of people got home from that war, and they may have been physically intact, but they were mentally and psychically devastated. And there have been thousands of suicides, uh, which continue down to today. And then even more so with these recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Just the DOD released a report a couple years ago saying that over 60,000 American veterans committed suicide just between 2008 and 2017. That is more than the entire official death toll of the Vietnam War for the United States. So even if people manage to escape the devastation on the battlefield and get home, there's now psychological devastation that continues and reverberates. Just And the reason I'm pointing this out is that you cannot sum up the kind of lingering and unfolding trauma of a war just in combat deaths. It's much more complex than that, and it cannot be summed up in that one statistic. Much less, I think, can you then compare it against a a different disaster like the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, which is a disaster that's still happening. It's still unfolding. We don't entirely understand how and why it's happened. We're in the middle of it. And it's certainly it's devastating in all kinds of ways, but it's devastating in different ways. People are dying in a different way under different circumstances. And there are different traumas. There's psychological trauma from the isolation and the anxiety. There's economic loss. And you can't just tot up, you know, and try to to sum up in a simple statistic how big is this disaster versus that disaster, as if they're comparable or as as if they can even be summed up in a simple number. So that was really helpful, Sam. Thank you. I mean, just so much to go off of there. Why do we, I mean, why do I, and, uh, you know, why do we grasp for these, you know, these kind of analogs, these historical analogs. I mean, it strikes me that we're trying to say COVID is, you know, the pandemic is a distinct kind of event that's been happening. And I guess we struggle, I mean, first of all, we struggle because the last pandemic, no one's really alive, you know, alive from that, right? So there's no memory of it kind of in the society in the same way. But why, what is your sense of why we, we kind of reach for these, like the war, particularly, what we reach for with, with this pandemic? Well, I think there are a number of reasons, and there are valid reasons. You know, we, we have more of a kind of distinct shared image and mythology of World War II than probably any other event in the past hundred years. And so when we're looking at a tragedy and a disaster and we want to put it in perspective, it's a natural place to go to make that comparison. And we we think about and speak about and make movies about World War II in a way that we don't about any disease pandemic. So it's, it's a way to try to get a grasp 
on what's happening and take stock of it. And, you know, and I just made all those caveats about how you can't just make these facile comparisons as if a, a death of COVID-19 is the same as a death in Guadalcanal or the Battle of the Bulge. But nonetheless, it's important for us to start taking stock and sort of collectively reckoning with what's happened to us. And it's still really too early to do that in any comprehensive way because it's not over. You know, we're, we still don't have control over it. But it's important, I think, and it's an early step towards public mourning, really. And I do think that is really important. And if we think back to the Spanish flu, you know, a lot of the reason why the Spanish flu, I think, was really devastating uh, and left kind of unhealed scars was because there was no public mourning for what had happened. You know, at the time it was going on, it was overshadowed in people's minds by the war, which people saw as more important, uh, or, you know, the, the war in Europe. And also, at that time, there was still a significant stigma around dying of disease. It was seen as kind of embarrassing or a sign of weakness to say that your son or your sister had died of an illness like influenza. And that stigma, you know, lasted right up through most of the 20th century. So there was never a kind of open public reckoning and uh, collective mourning where people could take their private grief and situate it and share it with others who had gone through the the same disaster. And if you look at the great literature that discusses the Spanish flu, like, uh, you know, Pale Horse, Pale Rider, or Look Homeward Angel, there's this sense of, uh, of a kind of unresolved private grief that people often kept secret for their whole lives. And we can't let that happen now. People have to start talking publicly and reckoning in some kind of collective way with what we've gone through. And counting the dead is one step. It's one early step in doing that. You know, you, you kind of led me to this question, which is, is it that we want the pandemic to feel, do we want something, some kind of more shared reckoning that we had in World War II, but we're not having now? Is there something about how we are grieving as a nation that we wish was different, so we reach to the kind of World War II as a way to kind of maybe try to capture a bit of that? Well, that's that's a hard question. I mean, I, you're a journalist, I'm not. I'm a historian. I, I can't give you the same sort of insight about what's happening right now. I think that certainly people people are reaching for some kind of collective expression of of grief that in a sense dignifies something very undignified you know it's there's a long history of celebrating and heroizing those who die on the battlefield that's just a common normal thing that people in all kinds of societies do we don't do the same thing with regard to people who die of a disease it it doesn't lend itself as easily to that kind of dignified memorialization. And we do not have a history of celebrating and honoring nurses, EMTs, nursing home workers, you know, the people who are on, you could say, in a sense, the front line of this particular struggle. Those people are not given the same kind of mythic treatment that we give to war heroes or even to war dead. But at base, you know, the, the tragedy of it may be similar, you know, and 
tragedy cannot be captured in a statistic. You know, it can only be captured in experience and in stories. And we're, you know, we're going to have to do that. And we're going to have to do it, I think, in a new way, in a way that we just don't have precedence for in the way that we do when it comes to war. Have you, just to be clear, you make these comparisons? I mean, would, 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 if you had to decide, or would you advise me and the media to just kind of move away from this, what is kind of, you know, I don't know if it's cliche at this point, but, you know, repeating, oh, that is like five Vietnam wars, you know, in half the time, or, you know, that is like World War II, um, you know, we're going to, we surpass that. I mean, should we just not, should we find a new kind of rhetorical... Well, here's here's how I would put it. I would the way I would put it is if you compare numbers, make it clear that you're only comparing numbers and that those numbers only have a limited significance. The devastation of World War II cannot just be summed up in a statistic 407,000 battle dead, much less, you know, Viet, can you say the devastation of Vietnam is simply 58,000 battle dead. You know, I grew up in mostly in the 1990s. And I remember learning as a young person that America has a cultural stereotype, an ingrained cultural stereotype of the psychologically scarred Vietnam veteran. And it took me a while to realize how perverse that is, that we all know, it's just a known open secret that all kinds of people are struggling in deep ways with the trauma of Vietnam and rather than doing something about that, we make a joke of it. It becomes a laughing stock, which probably only then continues the suffering, right? So the, the what I'm saying is the impact of a war, just to take Vietnam as an example, is much more complex and often much harder and more challenging to cope with than is summed up in a statistic like 58,000. And so that number is a number. It is a, you know, it's a valid piece of historical evidence and you can use it, but you have to couch it very carefully that if something happens and 58,000 people die, that doesn't mean it's equivalent to the Vietnam War. It doesn't mean that, you know, and, and same with 9-11, people do the same thing. You know, three 9-11s did not just happen. Tragedy cannot be captured in a statistic and you can't simply tot these things up like jelly beans in a jar and think that they're all commensurable. It's much more complex than that. It's more social. It's more psychological. And so I would say, go ahead and make comparison numbers, but just say the number of people who have died that is attributed to COVID-19 is roughly the same as the official total of combat dead from World War II. That doesn't mean it's the same as World War II or even that the two are on the same level or this are, are comparable. They're two different kinds of tragedies. Yeah, well, that's really, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I learned my lesson, you know, at 300,000 uh, dead story. I mean, I do all the time. I'm tasked with doing these kind of milestone stories usually for NPR. I've got a lot of anger um, about, first of all, exactly what you said, people just kind of interpreting statement as, oh, you're saying someone dying is like my grandfather going overseas to D-Day. Like, it's different. So you just easily run the risk of offending people, it seems like. I think I had in line, like, there was no recent historical analog or comparison to the, you know, the level of death that has occurred so quickly. Something like that. You know, a little better written. So my point was, we haven't seen a distinct event kill this many people so quickly, 
talking about AIDS. Obviously, that was tragic and horrific in its own way. Didn't kill 400,000 people in a year. Um, you, you kind of stray into eyes bound. You, you stray into these territories where very, um, they think you're trying to kind of diminish the comparison kind of that tool ends up maybe having the opposite of that. Yeah, well, and I, I think it only makes sense that it sort of backfires no matter how you do it, because cause these events are really complicated, you know, and, and, and I should make clear, every death is a tragedy, you know, anything that leads to grief is a tragedy. But that doesn't mean that, you know, if we step back from COVID-19 for, for a moment and not talk specifically about that, a person dying of natural causes when they're older, when they've lived a long, fulfilling life, maybe dying peacefully, surrounded by friends and family. That's a death, but it's not the same phenomenon as, say, a young person dying violently in gun violence or a murder or war. And and likewise, it's not the same thing as a young person dying of a disease like AIDS, maybe in the prime of life or in early adulthood, when their life should just be beginning. All of these are different phenomena, and they leave behind different kinds of loss and grief that can't be calculated. You know, and if you if you talk about the people we lost in World War II, the average age of an enlisted soldier or sailor in World War II was 26. In Vietnam, it was 22. In the early waves of AIDS, we're talking about people in their 20s and 30s. Spanish flu, it hit hardest people in their 20s and 30s. So you're not just talking about a death toll. You're not just talking about a body count. You're talking about decades of these people's lives lost, whole careers they could have had, families they could have started. We can never know the books that were never written, the churches, the businesses that were never founded. It's, it, it is beyond, it's not quantifiable. That, that, that loss is not quantifiable. And I, don't, I do not say that to minimize what's happening now in COVID-19. But just to say, every, every tragedy is its own tragedy with its own circumstances and its own effects. And you have to be very careful, especially when you're using numbers. You have to be very careful to say these are just numbers. They only capture a specific limited aspect of the story. I mean, this has been just great in terms of kind of teasing apart this issue for me. Uh, but can I ask you one more quick question, which is you had mentioned the Spanish flu earlier in this conversation and kind of the private, you know, people, it sounds like you said there was not that opportunity for collective grieving, kind of privacy to it. And I guess when you look at how we're reckoning with this as a country right now in a very different ways, are there similarities, differences that stand out to you between well, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I think that in some ways we have a massive head start beyond where we were with the Spanish flu in the sense that we're very conscious that this pandemic is happening. We know that it's affecting us. We're grappling with it. When the Spanish flu happened, it was not publicly discussed nearly as much. People like Catherine Ann Porter wrote in Pale Horse, Pale Rider, people almost felt it was selfish to talk about their grief and their loss of loved ones to the flu when they were supposed to be supporting our boys over there um, at the war front. So it was really swept under the rug to a great degree. So in that sense, we're way ahead of where we were. But I do think that there is also still a problem now with this pandemic that's similar to the way 
we're approaching war, which is that we're really not seeing what's happening to a lot of these people when they're suffering and dying. It's happening in isolation, in ICUs, in hospital wards. We don't see what the nurses and the orderlies and the doctors are having to go through day by day. It's pretty much invisible, you know, and to to use this very fraught war metaphor, you know, those of us who aren't in the hospitals are kind of like civilians. And we can be kind of splendidly isolated from what's really going on when this disease really hits people the hardest. So in in that way, I think we we still have a long way to go. And there's going to be, I think, a very difficult accounting of of who was lost and how and what they went through and and of the missed opportunities uh, to, to grieve, you know, the, the missed funerals that people have had to 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 deal with as they lose loved ones. So there's going to be, I think, uh, a lot of reckoning to do once this is over. I mean, that's what stood out to me, you know, having covered this for a year, is just exactly what you said about kind of the invisibility of so much of this to the public. There, there are efforts to make it more visible through memorials or through media coverage, but it is all happening on a hospital wing out of sight. Really striking. I assume with the Spanish flu, my understanding, people were dying at the doorstep. All you know, people saw the death and the demise quite quickly. That's right. A lot, a lot of the suffering and death in the Spanish flu happened at home, and also a lot of it happened in kind of makeshift hospitals and clinics, in gymnasiums, in schools. And so it was kind of undeniable that it was happening in people's lives, but still, nonetheless, they didn't really come together collectively to. To, to grieve and to mourn publicly. I mean, this has been great, Sam. Is there anything else uh, that you would like to kind of points you'd like to make that, that we didn't touch on? I'm just going to glance over, glance over my notes. In a lot of ways, we we can't compare. Also, because we don't know what the lasting injury of this pandemic is going to be. We know that some people are going to come out of this with lung damage and with brain damage. We know that people are going to come out with probably PTSD from the fear and the isolation. And we don't know what the institutional and economic effects are going to be. You know, so in a lot of ways, this is this is a very complicated phenomena. And a lot of people are going to need a lot of help coping and recovering. And we still really don't know the nature of that. It's it's just uh, it's still imponderable. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we do these death tolls, we don't talk about all the excess deaths. I mean, there's a whole other issue that we haven't figured out. I think, you know, there's some mm-hmm. studies out there, but they don't know yet how many people didn't get medical, you know, had their medical treatment one way or another interrupted. Um, and, I mean, there's so many, you're right, there's so many other kind of ways in which uh, people, you know, the death toll will grow and, and the impacts will, will, will we're not seeing it um, in that number. So this has been really helpful. I did, for my... 400,000 death story, I avoided making comparisons. Uh, <laughs> rise to this, you know, this story idea, which I think is a good conversation. It touches on all these kind of deeper things that, that you brought up. Yeah, yeah, and I hope I hope that it helps people get more of the full picture, both of what's going on now and of what's happened and what people have gone through in the past, you know, which is, again, not just summed up in a statistic. Yeah.
So that was my interview from January with journalist Will Stone about comparisons between the current pandemic and the Second World War. And lastly now, you'll hear a section taken right out of the middle of my latest lecture on Patreon, Myth of the Month 16, The Founding Fathers. So again, if you want to hear the whole thing, please go to my Patreon page and support at any amount or any level. Thank you. So this attempt to use the idea of founders as a source of ideals was failing by the early 20th century. But what allowed it to evolve and develop further was the new conflicts and problems coming with industrialization, immigration, and mass politics, which reframed the question so that you could overlook and forget about these nuances and differences and divisions among the founding generation and just invoke them as symbols of some vague Americanness or Americanism. The phrase founding fathers came into usage in the early 1900s. Initially, its predecessor was founding American fathers, but eventually that middle word got dropped out in order to sound better. And both of those phrases, founding American fathers and founding fathers, were coined by none other than everyone's favorite early 20th century American president, Warren G. Harding. And it makes a lot of sense that this phrase came from Harding for a lot of reasons. Harding had started out as a newspaper publisher in Ohio. He knew how to produce language and rhetoric that would sound appealing and inspiring to a broad audience. He became a state politician in Ohio as a Republican, and he clearly belonged to the conservative wing of the Republican Party. So the Republicans by this time were divided between a conservative, sort of laissez-faire Republicans and progressives, kind of left over from the Reconstruction era. And he was a conservative, but also viewed himself as a conciliator, a unifier who wanted to bring different wings of Republicanism together. And he wanted to appeal to a sense of shared, enduring values that could bridge the gaps, both between different wings of, of the Republican Party and between the different sections of the country, between the North and the South, which at his time in the 1910s were still basically partisan divided between a Republican-dominated North and a Democratic-dominated South, with also a Democratic stronghold in New York. So in 1912, he gave an address to the Republican National Convention in which he referred to the founding American fathers. And then at the next convention in 1916, while the country was divided and debating whether or not to get involved in the World War, he gave the first speech that used the phrase founding fathers. And it was in this context. He said, quote, no political party ever has builded or even can build permanently except in conscientious devotion to abiding principles. Time never alters a fundamental truth. 
Conditions do change, popular interest is self-assertive, but the essentials of constructive government and attending progress are abiding and unchanging. For example, we ought to be as genuinely American today as when the Founding Fathers flung their immortal defiance in the face of old-world oppressions and dedicated a new republic to liberty and justice. So you can see here Harding is weaving together several things, the idea of progress, liberty and justice, the revolution, with this true Americanism. We should be as genuinely American today as we were then. And this was probably very potent at a time when society was rapidly changing, when you had industrial cities, a new massive working class composed largely of immigrants and also African Americans coming up from the South. You had radical unionism and strikes. So Harding here casts these so-called founding fathers as sort of sages with timeless wisdom that should endure even as society might change or even despite the popular will. The government should hold fast to some fundamentally American principles. In his view, these founding fathers were not just solving problems in their own time, but for all time. Time never alters a fundamental truth. So there are several important innovations in this concept of founding fathers as opposed to framers or founders. For one thing, it has a gender. It now is explicitly male. So if there was ever any doubt, we now know that it cannot include people like, say, Abigail Adams or Mercy Otis Warren, who wrote the first history of the revolution to interpret and draw a political message from the revolution. Founding Fathers also implies a familial and ancestral connection, not just political. That further implies an emotional connection. The idea that these fathers are setting a tone or a model for their children. Hence, they are kind of role models for a whole identity and way of life, not just for politics. And further, if you accept this idea of the founders as fathers, there's also an implication of an ethnic and racial connection, which was very significant in the 1910s because of the tremendous immigration into the country, the massive growth of a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, largely Catholic working class in the cities, which looked quite different from the makeup of the society that had declared independence from Britain. In the 1910s, there was mounting fear over foreign influence, which also then got caught up in the controversies over the First World War. Fear of foreign infiltration of spies, fifth columns. There was a very powerful wave of anti-German animus during the war. And all of this then was only heightened with the Russian Revolution, which happened just a year later in 1917, which gave way then in the 1920s to the first Red Scare and the first immigration restrictions, the first laws curtailing immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, which were passed in 1921 and 24. So the first one in 1921 was enacted when Harding was president. And the 20s in general were also a high watermark of white supremacism when the, the Ku Klux Klan controlled several states, 
racial and ethnic thinking were taking hold at the center of American politics in the 1910s and 20s when this phrase, founding fathers, emerges and passes very quickly into common talk, into the American language. One of the great ironies of this fact is that Warren Harding was seen by writers and critics at the time as a very poor speaker with a clumsy, long-winded, and pompous style. And there's kind of a famous column from 1920, the year when Harding was elected, where the famous critic and satirist H.L. Mencken mocked Harding's language in his speeches. And he said of it, quote, It reminds me of a string of wet sponges. It reminds me of tattered washing on the line. It reminds me of stale bean soup, of college yells, of dogs barking idiotically through endless nights. It is so bad that a sort of grandeur creeps into it. It drags itself out of the dark abysm of pish and crawls insanely up the topmost pinnacle of posh. It is rumble and bumble. It is flap and doodle. It is balder and dash. And it can seem very strange. How could it be that someone who was derided in this way for his nonsensical, meandering mode of speech... How is it that he managed to coin this term and others which were so completely embraced into the language and are still very much embedded in our language today? And Harding did bequeath to the language two very common phrases that we still use today. One is founding fathers. The other is return to normalcy, which was basically his slogan for his election in 1920 after the tumult of the progressive era, the labor unrest, the involvement in World War I, prohibition, people wanted to go back to normal, which should sound very familiar. And, you know, exactly 100 years later, a new president has been elected on a very similar platform after, again, a period of great rupture and tumult. Now, it happens that he invented not only the phrase return to normalcy, but the word normalcy. Before that time, the word was normality. But it's significant because these two concepts of return to normalcy and founding fathers are related. They're part of the same general conservative message, the turn to basic principles, and they have this, what you could call pomposity, but also a poetic quality if you take them on their own terms. And Harding clearly liked the alliteration of founding fathers. And the phrase became one of his trademarks. Most significantly, Harding used it in his inaugural address when he was sworn.